We're going to be learning Hamedrish Vahamasa on Parshas Miketz. He's explaining the story of Yosef interpreting Paro's dream, which gets Yosef out of prison. So as usual, he has a number of literary questions, but he's going to explain the concept of a dream and prophecy. The Gemara in Brachos Nunhei says, Chalma Bisha Atzivusa Mistayeya. When someone has a bad dream, the fact that they feel bad, they're frightened by the dream, is enough to remove whatever bad decree was being communicated by the dream. And the other way as well. When someone has a good dream and they feel happy about it, so that happiness is enough that that's the prediction of the dream being fulfilled. So that means that a dream really leads to the opposite of its prediction. A good dream minimizes the goodness and a bad dream minimizes the badness. Now, in general, there's a contradiction in the Gemara between dreams. Sometimes they treat a dream like a quasi-prophecy, that it should be taken very seriously. But then the Gemara also says that that dreams don't matter and don't pay attention to them. So this is a flat-out contradiction. Are dreams quasi-prophecy or are they irrelevant? Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa that the answer is based on a comment of the Atze Levona in his commentary on Shulchan Aruch Yoredea, Simen Reish Chav Ches, he quotes from the Sefer B'nei Chia that he explains the halacha is that if someone has a dream and in the dream he's being excommunicated, so he can absolve that excommunication in front of 10 people. So the Bnei Chia explains that because they showed him that he's excommunicated in a dream, so they're giving him advice that he should go and absolve the excommunication. In other words, the dream is not telling him that he's excommunicated and he should be worried. It's trying to help him out that he should go get absolved and get out of the excommunication. So we see that dreams are supposed to be helpful. So those are the types of dreams that we should take seriously when they're telling us to do something, that's a quasi-prophecy. It's indicating some direction that we should go in or some practical outcome that we should pursue. But when there's a dream that tells us something that has no practical relevance, there's nothing for us to do based on the dream. So that is when the Gemara says, Such a dream is irrelevant. Don't pay attention to it because Hashem would not give a dream that's a total waste of time. So those dreams, the purpose of them is if it's a good dream, so it's meant to make the person feel good, so that will fulfill the dream itself. And if it's a bad dream, feeling scared and frightened by it will itself resolve some of the problem that the dream is addressing. So every dream has to have a point. Either it's telling us what to do practically, or the point is just to create some sort of emotion, which is the purpose of the dream, but the overall story of the dream is irrelevant. So now applying this to the story of Yosef, when Paro's servants, the Sarah Ophim and the Sarah Mashkim, saw dreams about what Paro was going to do to them, so that was something that was not in their control at all. So Yosef knew these types of dreams are irrelevant because they're not indicating something that the people themselves should do. And he has a very interesting explanation. The Gemara says that each one saw the interpretation of the other one's dream. So that's generally understood to mean that each one saw their own dream 
and what the other one's dream was supposed to mean. So that's how they knew that Yosef had interpreted their own dream correctly when he got the other ones correct. But the Hamedrish Vahamasa suggests another interpretation that they each saw the opposite of what happened to them. The Saramashkim saw himself hanged and the Sarhaofim saw himself going back to his job. So Yosef understood that since these are the irrelevant type of dreams, each one is seeing the opposite of what's actually going to happen. So the Sarhamashkim who had a bad dream, that bad dream made him feel scared. So after that, good things happened to him. And the Sarhaofim who had a good dream, the happiness that he felt was itself the fulfillment of the dream and then bad things happened to him. So that's how he interprets that based on his idea that if a dream is impractical, it's not meant to be taken as a sign of something, but rather whatever feeling comes from the dream is itself the purpose of the dream. Now, the other side of this equation for the Hamedrash Vahamasa is that dreams that do have a practical purpose are teaching the person what they should do. So he says those are the types of dreams that Yosef himself had, that he saw everyone bowing to him. Those dreams were intended to prepare Yosef for the role that he would eventually play. And that was exactly the issue that he had with his brothers, because the brothers, when they heard Yosef's dream, so they thought it was never going to happen. So therefore, it was an irrelevant type of dream. And that's why they got upset at Yosef, because they considered this not a quasi-prophecy, but the type of dream that's just saying irrelevant things. As opposed to Yaakov, who the Torah says that he was waiting to see what happened. So Yaakov was unsure if this is an irrelevant type of dream, or it's a prophetic dream. And Yosef realized that it was a prophetic dream, and he quotes a medrash that when Yosef speaks to his brothers, he actually refers to his dream as a sort of prophecy. So the medrash itself is connecting that Yosef was insisting that this was a real dream that was giving him practical instructions as to how to prepare for the future. His father was not sure, and the brothers thought it was an irrelevant dream. So that was the issue that they had and why the brothers were so angry at him. So those are the dreams of Yosef and the Saramashkim and Saraofim. Now Paro has a dream. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa says that when kings have dreams, if they're the irrelevant types of dreams, it's just to make them scared or feel good. So then generally the dream will deal with personal matters. So it shows the king a story about his own personal life. But when it's a prophetic dream, so then usually it has to do with the future of the country because there the prophecy is helping the king either prepare for something bad or be ready to lead in a good time. So if the king has a dream that has to do with the future of the country, so that seems to indicate that it's a quasi-prophetic dream. So that's what happened with Pyro. He had a dream about these fat and skinny cows and fat and skinny stalks. And his interpreters interpret it that he's going to have seven children and they're going to die. So Paro gets frustrated with their interpretation because says that is an interpretation with no practical outcome. There's nothing for Paro himself to do about that. 
So it means that the dream is an irrelevant dream. So that's what the Torah says, Ve'ein poser oso nobody could interpret this, meaning nobody could explain it in a way that it was relevant to Paro in his role as the king of Egypt. He was responsible for the future of the Egyptian country. So he wanted a dream that would help him, that would be a quasi-prophecy about the future. But the way they were interpreting it was irrelevant because there was no practical outcome. There was nothing for Paro to do. Then the interpreters made a second mistake. And this he explains based on a comment of his grandfather. At the beginning of Sefer Yirmiyahu, Hashem shows Yirmiyahu a vision and he asks him, what do you see? And Yirmiyahu answers, Makel shaked aniroe. I see the branch of an almond tree. So Hashem says, hey, tav os. you did a good job seeing. So the question is, what's so special about Yirmiyahu? Anyone that would see that vision would see a branch of an almond tree. Why is Hashem so happy that Yirmiyahu is able to see what's better about Yirmiyahu than other people? So he quotes from his grandfather, Reb Dov Zev, that he explained that the skill of a Navi is being able not to physically see the vision, but to identify what are the important elements of this vision. Any vision is going to have all sorts of details, and a lot of them are irrelevant, but there's a few details that are relevant to the prophecy. So for example, this stick that Yirmiyahu saw, he could have determined how long it was or how wide it was. He could have looked at all different aspects of the staff, but he understood that the key point is that it was an almond tree branch. So Yirmiyahu was able to identify what is the important feature, the detail of this vision that I need to interpret for the prophecy. So that's the skill of a prophet, not being able to see, but being able to identify the important points. Says that Medrash the same is true of a dream. A dream interpreter is someone who's able to understand what are the important details of this dream versus what are the irrelevant parts of this dream. That's the skill of dream interpretation. So Paro's interpreters were making this mistake. They kept focusing on the wrong details of the dream. They were explaining the number seven, but they were ignoring the main point of the dream, which is that there were cows and stocks. They were not explaining how those details are relevant to the interpretation. So not only were they not explaining why it's relevant for Paro in his role as king, they were not accounting for the main points of the dream. So those are the two complaints that Paro presents to Yosef, that it's not relevant to me as Paro, and there's nobody to interpret the dream. So Yosef responds to those two points, and he says, Biladai, first of all, everyone should be able to see that the key point of the dream are the cows and the stocks. And then he says that Hashem will help me answer Shlom Paro, the good of Paro, meaning I'm going to interpret the dream in a way that's relevant for you. Now, he references the three-part division between Chachma, Bina, and Da'as, which is very important to Kabbalah. It's the acronym for Chabad. But says that Medrash Ramasa, there's a very simple way to interpret the difference between these three forms of knowledge. There's Yedia, which is just knowing facts. It's a very low level. A person has a certain amount of facts that they're aware of. Then there's Bina, which is understanding. There, the person is able to understand on a deeper level 
some of the concepts that they're aware of. And then there's Chachma, which is going beyond all of that, where the person is able to intuit where this is going to go. So using that three-part division, he explains that what Paro had was Yedia. He knew the facts of his dreams, but he didn't have an understanding or a wisdom to predict where this was going to go. So that was his problem. And it says that Medrash Masa, this is parallel to a contemporary problem in his days. He says, we all can see that there's going to be a terrible famine in the future generation, not for physical food, but spiritually. The future generations are going to be desperate to hear the word of Hashem to study Torah. We all can see this situation developing. So that's da'as, that's knowledge of a fact, but it doesn't help because we don't have the understanding or the wisdom to know how to deal with this and how to prevent or how to solve this future situation. So that was the skill of Yosef. He shows up and he says to Paro, yes, Hashem showed you what he's going to do. He told you, meaning you have the knowledge of the dreams. You do have the first level of the facts of what is going to happen, but it's not going to help you because you're missing the Bina and the Chachma. You're missing understanding and wisdom about what to do with these facts. Now, says Yosef, with the help of Hashem, I can help interpret your dream so now you'll understand the point of the dream. But you're still missing the wisdom to know how to actualize what's going to happen in the future. So therefore, you need an ish chacham, a wise man who's going to oversee the process. And that's exactly what happens. Paro appoints Yosef to do that. And Yosef understands that when the famine comes, people are going to be willing to give up anything in order to get food. Whoever has the storehouse houses of food is going to be totally in control of the whole country. So Yosef actualizes that plan and it is very successful and he gains a lot of power for Paro. Now Yosef, when he interpreted Paro's dream, so he could have understood that he was in line for the job of the Chacham, the person who was going to oversee the whole process, because it makes sense that the person who interprets the dream would then get the top job. So as soon as he's interpreting this dream, Yosef could have foreseen that he was going to end up in a very powerful position. But Yosef also understood that there would be a lot of resentment from the local Egyptians if a foreigner was to now be in charge of them and to be running the country. So that's why he comes up with a balanced plan where Paro is going to appoint the people who are going to oversee the different regions of this plan and Yosef will be on top of them. So the actual order will come from Paro. So Yosef's structure this all very cleverly to preserve his power and to be able to actualize the future of these dreams. Now, Paro then responds to Yosef and he says, So Paro says to Yosef, not only are you the Navon and the Chacham, the Bina and the Chachma, you also are the one with Da'as. So Paro is saying to Yosef, you think I was the one with the facts. 
and you had the Bina and the Chachma, but really I knew nothing if not for your interpretation. So you're the one with all three, the Da'as, the Bina, and the Chachma. And now he adds one final interesting point about Yosef's leadership. It says that Yosef gathered all the land from everyone in the country and acquired it on behalf of Paro, except for the priests. So the religious leaders in Egypt, their land Yosef didn't touch. Says the Amedrash Vamasa because Yosef understood that he could take all the land he wanted from all the private citizens. But as soon as he started going after the religious leaders, then the people would get up in an uprising and they wouldn't care who Yosef was and what he had done for them and how smart he is. They would have gone crazy. They would have fought back against him. So Yosef was smart enough to realize that he could amass as much power as he wants even though he was a foreigner, so long as he leaves the religious leaders alone. And he ends with a cryptic comment. He says that he wishes the Jewish leaders who rose to positions of power in the Western countries would understand the same lesson and not get involved in the religious disputes of non-Jews, and then there would be far less problems. He says those who know what's going on will be aware of what he's talking about. So obviously some Jewish leader had gotten involved in a religious dispute, and the Hamedrish Vahamasa is totally against that. He thinks that Jews should avoid being involved in non-Jews' religious disputes. It can only lead to problems for the Jews. And he concludes by saying that in our days, which is his days, and certainly in our days, we need to emulate Yosef, not only to have the idea to know the facts how much assimilation, how much intermarriage is there, but to have the Bina and the Chachma, to have an understanding of the situation and to be able to see where this is going to go in the future and how we can be better prepared. So that's our mission for the good of the Jewish people, to be able to combine those three elements together. Now, the second drasha has to do with Hanukkah, which usually falls out during Parshas Miketz, and it has to do with the Haftorah from Zechariah, the second chapter. The Navi has a vision of a menorah, and it has two olive branches on top of it. And the angel asks him, what do you see? And he says to the angel, what are these? And the angel says to him, you know what they are. And the Navi responds, no, I don't. So it's a very strange back and forth that they have. And then the angel tells him, that the redemption of Yerushalayim is not going to be with physical strength. It's going to be with the spirit of Hashem. So this is a very strange prophecy and vision and the whole conversation that they have. So that Medrash Vamasa explains that there are three types of trees which are mentioned in this prophecy. First, there's a grape vine and a date tree, and then there's an olive tree. So he explains that these three produce represent the three types of pleasure that people have in this world. One is physical pleasure, one is vastness, and one is honor. So the olive branch represents honor because it's sort of a beautiful branch and it produces oil, which is a very powerful product. So that represents the desire for honor. The grape vine represents pleasure because it produces wine. And of course, wine brings a lot of pleasure. And the date represents vastness because it's the type of food that people can eat and live off of so it can support a large group of people. So people want to be part of a large, vast network. So that's represented by the date. So those are the three types of pleasures that the Navi is discussing. Physical pleasure, honor, and vastness.
Now, there is a key difference between physical pleasure and vastness, which are ultimately physical things. So a person wants them so long as they're in this world, but they're not the kinds of things that survive in the spiritual world that go beyond the physical pleasure, as opposed to the desire for honor, which is at root a spiritual desire. It's not really a physical desire because how does it help someone to be honored? It doesn't make them stronger or healthier or give them enjoyment like food. So it's a spiritual pleasure. And that's why people are concerned with their honor even beyond the grave. They want their reputation, their legacy. They want people to speak about them in an honorable way, even when they're physically gone. Now, the Rambam describes his vision of what's going to be in the times of Mashiach. And the Rambam follows the view in the Gemara that there is no fundamental change in the laws of nature between this world and the times of Mashiach. On a physical level, it's all going to be the same, but politically, everything's going to be the same. There won't be war. There won't be famine, everything is going to be good, even though there's not going to be any magical changes from our world to the world of Mashiach. Now, there is a world which is post the days of Mashiach. So first Mashiach comes, and then at some point after that, the whole world does change to what the Rambam calls Olam Haba, the future world. Generally, the Rambam is understood to be talking about Olam Haba, which is where the soul goes after death. But according to the Amedrash Vamasa, and there are certainly views that interpret Olam Haba this way, he's referring to the period post-Mashiach, when the whole world changes, and at that point, there is no physical pleasure. So people don't have a need to eat or drink. The physical body does not need to be taken care of. You only focus on the spiritual soul. So according to this timeline, each of these future periods provides some of the benefits that people are looking for. In the times of Mashiach, there's a lot of physical pleasure. So that provides for the physical pleasure and the vastness. And then in Olam Haba is a period of kavod. So that provides the honor that people are looking for, the true kavod. So these are the two periods that the Navi Zechariah is seeing. He begins with a description, Vahaya Bayom Hahu, in that period. So this is talking about the first period of Mashiach. Yikru'u ish el re'ehu el tachas gefen vel tachas te'ena. People will call to each other from under the grape and the date. So here we have the two elements of Mashiach, the vastness and the physical pleasure. People are living the good life. So that's the first vision that Zechariah sees. Now, that's not the full resolution of what people need because there's still the true kavod which is missing. So that's the next vision that he sees. Now he sees a menorah with an olive branch on top of it. So that represents the kavod that's going to come in the second period of Olam Haba. And here he doesn't even mention the grape and the date because at this point, it's a much higher level. Those things don't really matter anymore because now we're dealing with the ultimate kavod that has been revealed in the world in Olam Haba. So now the Navi asks the angel, Ma'ele Adoni, what are these? 
So the Hamedrish Vahamasa explains that what Zechariah is trying to ask is similar to what he explained in the previous drasha, that very often a Navi can see a physical vision, but he does not understand what are the important points of this vision. So Zechariah's problem is that he's unable to differentiate what is the key elements of this vision that I should be focusing on. So he asks the angel, Ma'ela Adoni, what is this? Now, says the Amedish Ramasa, there are two ways to formulate a question like that. In Hebrew and even in English, we have this. You could say, Maze, what is this? Which is a way of saying, I don't even know what you're holding. Tell me the object, what it is. Or you could say, Mahuze, what is the meaning of this object? So I do see the object physically, but I don't understand what is the meaning of it. So Zechariah says to the angel, Ma'ela, what is this? So it sounds like he's asking, what is the object? I can't see anything. So the angel responds to him, you know what the object is. You see it. Your question is, Mahema Ela. What is the meaning of this vision? So it's not that you can't see the vision. You should be asking me, what is the meaning of it? So Zechariah agrees that that's what he really wants to understand. And the angel explains to him that the final redemption of Olam Haba is not going to be physical. It's not just that people have good food and they enjoy themselves, but it's a spiritual redemption. It's a full redemption when the full honor and glory of Hashem comes to this world. So that's what he's seeing in the second vision of the menorah with the olive branch, that is Olam Haba, when there's no more physical pleasure, but it's now a spiritual kavod pleasure. So that's how he interprets the meaning of this vision in the Haftorah. There is another interpretation of this Haftorah from Rab Chaim Soloveitchik, which I go through on a podcast on the Rab Chaim Soloveitchik channel called Supplement to Shemitah V'Yovel, Sanctifying Israel. So most of that is a more technical discussion of Rab Chaim's views on that issue. But towards the end of that, there is an explanation from Rab Chaim about this Haftorah, which is quoted by his son and grandson for anyone that's interested. Now, the halachic discussion of the Hamedrash Vahamasa is about whether you can save yourself through harming someone else. So this has to do with the story when Yosef, who the brothers don't recognize, tells them that they can all go back, but they need to leave one brother with him. So there's a few questions on this story. First of all, when Yosef puts all the brothers in prison, they don't regret having sold Yosef. But then when he says to them, you can leave except for one of your brothers, then they suddenly start to do teshuva. They say, it's our fault. We sold Yosef. We watched Yosef's terror and we still sold him. And the Medrash has a very dramatic description of this. It says that Yosef was begging each one of his brothers not to sell him and they still sold him. So this was an act of great cruelty. But why are they repenting only when the rest of them are freed as opposed to one brother and not before that? Then Yosef gives them a speech and he says, I told you not to sell our brother. So why is Reuven giving them a speech after they repented when the Gemara says you're not supposed to remind the penitent of their original sin? Why didn't Reuven give them this speech before they had repented? Yeah.
And then the Medrash comments, Ruvain says, Vigam domo hine nidrash, that we're being punished for Yosef's blood. So the Medrash comments his blood and the blood of his elder, referring to Yaakov. So what does that mean? So the Medrash Vamasa explains, based on a comment of the Malbim, the Torah says that Yosef spoke to his brothers, Shimon, and then he took Shimon. So what did he say to them? It doesn't tell us what he said to them. So the Malbim explained that Yosef said to the brothers, give me one of your brothers who will remain behind in prison and the rest of you can go home. But the halacha is that if attackers say to a group, give us one person, they don't specify which person, just give us a person and the rest of you are free to go. So the group is not allowed to do that. They all have to be martyred rather than choose one person. So the brothers were following halacha and they said to Yosef, we cannot give you one person. We can't be the ones to choose. So then Yosef chose on his own and he took Shimon. So that's what the Torah is referring to. He made this request that they should choose. And when they said we can't do so, according to the halacha, so then Yosef took Shimon. Says the Hamedrash Vamasa, how did Yosef even think to begin with that the brothers would give him one of them that they would choose when that goes against a straight out halacha? So Yosef should have known that of course his brothers were not going to follow that command. And not only is it a halacha, but it totally makes sense. Why should the group of people choose one person who's now going to lose their life so that the rest of them can survive? In halacha, we consider all lives equal and you're not allowed to sacrifice one life for the benefit of another. So he answers this based on the view of the Rambam. There is a debate, what happens if the attackers don't just ask for one person, but they specify which person they want? So there's a group of people and the attackers say, we want this specific person. Otherwise, we're going to kill everyone. So there's a debate in the Yerushalmi between Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan says that in that case, you hand over the person who was specified and everyone else survives. Reish Lakish says that you still can't hand over that person unless they're Chayiv Misa. They're anyways someone who deserves the death penalty. If they were specified and they deserve the death penalty, so then you can hand that person over in order to save everybody else's life. And that's how the Rambam rules, like Reish Lakish, that we require both of those factors, that the attackers specify a person and that that person is Chayiv Misa. So the Hamedrash Masa has a long tangent discussing this ruling of the Rambam, but then he quotes that the Taz qualifies the ruling a little bit. It doesn't mean that the person actually deserves the death penalty in a legal sense, that the court would rule that this person gets the death penalty. But it means even if the person is more obligated towards the attacker. In other words, let's say the attacker has a specific claim against one of the people in the group. They're the person that he's mad at and he demands that person. So then the group is able to give that person over even though they might be an upstanding person who does not deserve the death penalty legally. But since they're the person that's at the root of this dispute and they're the person that the attacker wants to hurt, so the people are allowed to hand that person over in order to save themselves. That's how the Taz understands the view of the Rambam. So now, if we apply this to the Psukim of Yosef and his brothers, Yosef said to the brothers, give me one of you. Now, Shimon was the one that Yosef was more upset at. 
because he was really the ringleader. He was leading the charge to kill Yosef, and he was the one who physically threw him into the pit, according to the Medrash. So Shimon was the one that Yosef was the most upset at. So according to the Halacha, if Yosef had asked for Shimon, then the brothers would have been allowed to hand him over to save the rest of them. But the flip side to that is that any of the brothers could have saved Yosef. If any one of them had stood up and said, I'm not going to be part of this, they on their own could have saved Yosef. So even though Shimon was the ringleader, but they were all responsible. So maybe they could not hand over Shimon because who says that Yosef is specifically angry at him? Really, he should be mad at all of them for not saving him. So there was a question whether they could hand one of the brothers, meaning Shimon, over to Yosef to save the rest of them or not. So this halachic view now explains the flow of the psukim. When Yosef says to the brothers, give me one of the brothers, so theoretically they could give Shimon because he was the ringleader. But now the rest of the brothers say, really we're all responsible for this because we all saw Yosef begging us not to sell him and any one of us could have stopped him. So since we're all responsible, maybe we're not allowed to hand Shimon over. So they were not only doing teshuva, they were also having a halachic discussion are we allowed to hand over Shimon to save the rest of us or not? So now Ruvain enters the discussion and he's arguing that there's another reason why the brothers can't hand over Shimon. Because says Ruvain, in addition to the sin against Yosef, we also sinned against our father by telling him that Yosef was killed and he's been mourning all these years. So says Ruvain, I told you not to sell Yosef, meaning you should have listened to me not to hurt Yosef himself. Himself, the gam damohine nidrash, but there's also the problem of our father. That's what the Medrash says, that it's not only Yosef, this affected Yaakov. And in that, we're all equally responsible. Maybe you could say that Shimon is the ringleader to hurt Yosef, but we all equally harmed Yaakov. So that's another reason why we can't hand over Shimon and save the rest of us. So at the end of this discussion, they decide that they are not allowed to hand over Shimon. He's not the one that Yosef is most upset at. Again, they don't know that this is Yosef, but they're talking about in terms of God's punishment of them, that Shimon is not more responsible than the rest of them, so they have no right to hand him over. So that's their conclusion. So that's why Yosef then just takes Shimon on his own and he stops asking them. But that also explains why originally Yosef thought that they might hand over Shimon on their own because there was an argument to be made that Shimon was more responsible so they would be allowed to hand him over. But then they had this halachic discussion and they concluded that they were all responsible. So that's why Yosef had to take Shimon on his own.